Cats Run Podcast. At the end of the last episode, I promised that we would be unraveling the mystery of why I am not raised up in statue at every Olympic site around the world. And I think that when you try to use yourself as an example, um, it's always walking a fine line because I think there's always space for people to wonder if there's an element of um, self-absorption or, you know, self-promotion. And I think to a certain extent, I mean, I'm recording this podcast. I have some ideas and some thinking I want to share. But I also want to include people in that and make that a conversation. Um, that's why, as I've said, before the end of the month, January, you'll start to see some interviews with some different people um, and trying to move those, not just from, you know, a series of questions and, and answers in a formulaic way, but to try to expand that into dialogue and discussion and really see what we can learn through developing a discourse around these topics. And I'm making and presenting some assertions here, but what do other people's experiences really tell us? And in a sense, if we want to be, uh, kind of think about if there's an academic method to this, I would say maybe we're kind of applying or taking a little inspiration from the idea of ethnography and, and cultural anthropologists, that the experiences people have and the way they talk about those are meaningful. And that's an original premise of the podcast, but what you guys, um, you know, awesome members of the audience, what you think and feel, perspectives you have, questions you have, ideas you have, those also matter too. So we invite you, as always, check us out on at Black Cats Run. Um, you will be able to uh, follow along there, engage in the discussion. You're welcome to send us. Uh, DM at any time. Let us know what you're thinking about as you're listening to the pod. What other points of view do you want to see represented? If you have some interesting sources or references that you think could help to expand or add, you know, more depth and or widen the view as well. Um, you know, we'd love to hear about those. So we'd love to make that a space for everybody to participate in. We don't want this to just be any one voice, right? We're trying to, if we're going to challenge ideas and try to question approaches and try to think about whether or not there are different or better ways to think about the identity of being an athlete, to think about how we want to engage with sport, then I think a part of that is making sure that's not a one voice monologue, although there's certainly an element right of this, which is trying to bring to you some of these different ideas and points of view and, and references too, right? And so we start there, and but that's not supposed to be the limit of that. So we encourage you to check out that space. Also, with this episode of the pod from our Learn to Fly edition, uh, there's going to be some, I don't know if I would call them supplemental, I would say key really um, graphics that we're going to put up there that is going to display some of the information that we're referencing. So like I said, I'm going to be using my experience and in particular my data um, 
athletic data as a reference point as we're trying to look at, and I said crosswalk uh, last episode, but maybe we're really jaywalking because I'm going to try to look across from Daniel's running formula to Coogan's seven, uh, Andrew Coogan's seven uh, cycling power zones. Um, although we should also acknowledge and down the road, we'll certainly talk about more specifically the way in which, you know, these zones are not the zones and there's a whole cultural space that, right, that's going to influence how that stuff gets developed is I'm sure you can imagine if you've been listening along with the pod this far, you probably picked up on that theme. Um, and I'm sharing this information, not as I am particularly good or particularly bad or particularly average, I think that we're all a data point in that sense. And that's not to trivialize our experience, but that's to say that our experiences matter and that our the way in which we talk about our athletic experience matters because how else can we best understand what we're feeling? And we've said in this pod that feeling good in a more complex, holistic a meaningful sense, right? More dynamic than just feeling immediately gratified, feeling immediately happy or, or getting a rush from something, right? Trying to move beyond the idea that the um, cure for athletics is, you know, hard alcohol, um, which, you know, there's a whole nother can of beans right there about what's the accessory lifestyle of athletics and why do we identify with that stuff? But, right, so many potential topics coming up already. Well, let's stay focused on what we're looking at here. So as we're doing this uh, jaywalking and try to parallel models, we're going to be talking about a lot of different pieces of data. And I think it would help you um, make it easier anyway to follow along with some of this stuff and kind of reach some of your own conclusions and think about if what I'm suggesting makes sense if you can see this data. So I've profiled some information for you. Um, I've given some information on my uh, you know, peak benchmarks, both you know, how, what my peak mark would be, um, against Daniel's V dot. And then what my peak would be against, uh, the sort of power and, you know, applying that across to power to weight. And I think sometimes people are sort of reluctant to talk about their data, not necessarily because they're concerned about appearing vain. And I, you know, I have nothing to be vain about, you know, to be totally honest. I think, you know, I've kind of fit in that space of somebody who I, my numbers and my data, I think would look exactly like, um, you know, how I would describe myself as an athlete, somebody who's into it, serious about it, but hasn't necessarily ever indicated some preternatural ability to sort of, you know, blow the doors off of people's normal expectations. Um, so what I want to put out there and frame kind of that context and I'm perfectly willing to be honest about where I am right now with my my fitness. And um, I don't think that my numbers are necessarily particularly good or particularly bad. And I think that, uh, you know, the numbers are numbers. And, you know, I would remind people, too, so people don't, you know, because, again, I really don't want people to think there's some sort of a flex going on here. But, you know, I think our numbers are just a reflection of where we are now. And the goal is to sort of improve. And if we improve, then the numbers and theories should change in response to that. But I also want to show you that I don't think the numbers are necessarily valuable in the right way. And that'll start to make um, more sense 
later, although you might be able to make an inference and guess from some of the things we've said about the physiological model so far that a part of the way in which the numbers don't matter is that maybe they're not as predictive of what we can do as they might uh, lead us to believe. So if you want that context, um, you can go and take a look at that post that will be up uh, by the time, if not before, uh, this pod comes out. This, And, you know, you can see on the first um, one, we're going to display some basic information about weight, um, you know, power numbers, and I'll also put down heart rate data and define uh, within running and cycling um, what my aerobic threshold, lactate threshold, and VO2 max um, heart rates are, and also talk about some of that stuff on the pod. I also have thrown up um, some data from uh, lactate threshold testing on a uh, three-minute interval with 20-watt steps um, over a 20-month period um, to show you, and that was a transition where I went from um, having not been doing a ton of, I've been doing sort of what maybe we might say is more sort of like maintaining level training for a while um, and not really doing sort of, you know, scrounging for, you know, additional benefits and trying to climb the ladder per se. And I started testing this stuff. I got a lactate plus at the end of 2018 and I started testing myself, myself at that time and I tested um, relatively frequently over a 20-month period, and you can take a look at that, um, and you can see the improvement that I made across that time, which I think goes back to the point that, you know, our numbers are just numbers, and I feel that the the change I was able to enact uh, for myself was a pretty significant improvement across that period of time. Um, there's some other interesting conclusions that, you know, you might be able to pull out from that. Um, I also show um, not just the lactate levels um, at different wattages in each test, but I also put up uh, my heart rate um, data from those tests. And then I also post um, the jaywalking, right? Our little jaywalk here between Daniel's and uh, Coogan's formula. And then I also throw in there um, where I am right now in my training. So if people are curious to say, well, what is what are you really doing Right. You know, it's a, I mean, not just to say that I think you can be engaged with this no matter what your level of activity is. But I think it's, you know, show you a sense of how I'm actively approaching this stuff. And I hope that if you take a look at that and you're and you're swiping um, on that post and, and looking through those um, those graphs and those um, data tables, I hope that that will show you, you know, give you some tangible evidence of that the things that I'm suggesting here are things that I've implemented myself. And you're going to see that the scale of the benefit that I've been able to get from that, you know, I think is is reasonable. And we're also going to see that I'm not doing that by following Daniel's running formula or really by uh, following the kind of like extrapolated, uh, you know, training dictates from um, the wattage power stuff. And I'll get into that a little bit more as we go. So, some common themes that emerge as we start to look at these models and things to pay attention to. And I think this comes out pretty clear on the, the jaywalk graphic um, where I put the running model, uh, my uh, running 
approach, which I put in a column titled Black Cats Run. And then my power according to the, and the zone, my training zones according to the Coogan's uh, seven zone model. And then under another column, Black Cats Run column, um, what my zones look like. And one of the things that we see that is standard uh, in the cycling zones and the Daniels zones, and I think in physiological models in general, is this concept of these sort of black zones, um, we, let's call them. And these are areas where either by explicit direction or by indirect implication, we're supposed to understand that it's bad to train in those zones. I think one, when I read um, Cyclist Training Bible, one of the things that was this concept or interpretation that the reason why we really need these specific zone, zones um, and to differentiate this stuff, whether by heart rate or the kind of more advisable, higher quality method um, of the power meter is because most cyclists, and I think that this concept is oftentimes applied in the sport of running as well, and I would assume is probably um, applied in pretty much most endurance sports, that uh, basically the athlete, you know, is training like in this dead space of kind of hard, but not hard enough to get any better. And I think that's an interesting way to look at it. And I, be honest with you, I don't know that I agree with that. I think that's way more complicated um, than to just say that people are at uh, these ambiguous intensities that are ineffective. Because without getting too off track, I think we want to just clarify that uh, stress is stress. And just because the stress is in between a lower level of stress and a higher level of stress doesn't mean it's not stress anymore, right? That would imply that there's some biological, cellular, neurological mechanism or some combination of those that are interacting in some way to turn off the kind of adaptive responses that emerge from stress if the stress is like in between. Um, and yeah, I think in some ways, right, we're using physiology to say that, well, there's distinct kinds of stress and we can sort of reach that conclusion because we can see different kinds of responses. But I don't think that the body, um, you know, or your brain is, is rushing into the basement um, to the circuit breaker, uh, sorry, to the um, switchboard and just starts flipping circuit breakers, you know, on and off you know, as you cross in and out of certain states of exertion. And I don't think it puts everything to neutral or to low response in certain states. I think that uh, it's more complicated than that. I think that, you know, if you train maybe in a kind of, you know, relatively demanding, but also relatively repeatable on like a day-to-day -day basis intensity, maybe what you're really getting into is a pattern of, um, volume and frequency of work that just isn't really something that's eliciting, eliciting a very high level of response. And you might have just sort of acclimated that to so much, to such a degree that you're kind of reached that point of maintenance. 
but that doesn't mean that that training intensity is the problem. And like a lot of this models, when they're talking about intensity, they're talking about that in the context of measured level of exertion in terms of velocity, um, which in running implies, right? Obviously a certain amount of power output in a sense to produce that. And in cycling, it is the power output. And I think this idea, um, you know, that they're in that space is not taking into consideration the significance of, well, how much are they doing, right? What if they added X amount of time? What if they added 5% or 10% and they maintain that same intensity? Well, now you're, you know, you're increasing that stress. So if they're sort of in balance or equilibrium with what their routine is and they're able to add volume, um, they're going to do that. And I appreciate, of course, that we have limited time. I have a full-time job myself, so it's not like I'm living in a fantasy world. But I also think, you know, we all, at the end of the day, if we're really willing to be honest with the person on the other side of the mirror, we have to acknowledge that, you know, we're not always taking advantage of the time that we have and that we have a tendency to drag or to putter or to waste time. And I think that has to do with our relationship with the activity, right? And does the physiological models address that? And what I'm going to show you is how um, in my feel-good approach to this stuff, I think what we want to recognize is that, you know, you have to adjust from the expectations the models lay out there. So, you know, these targeted zones then give give way to certain archetypes of workouts, um, in the instance of Jack Daniels V dot, um, you know, in his zones, um, in and I'll use these zones and try to refer to both so we can, you know, continue to jaywalk and keep this pictured in our head. Although the easiest way to do this is to look at the chart that I posted on the Instagram page. But those first that first two zones, um, for all of the categories, because really there's four. For Daniel's running formula, you have the easy long run category and the marathon pace category. And then for Coogan, you have zone one, zone two, and then you have my sort of a Black Cat's run interpretation of those things. Those are steady efforts, all right? Um, You get in a threshold and now it's a suggestion of the 20 minute interval for Jack Daniel's, which cyclists, right? There's that two by 20 minutes. Um, We also see the idea of five to 20 minutes um, of five minutes on one minute, one minute off. And he says, this is improving that uh, endurance, right? Which is interesting because in the Coogan model and, you know, the other resources in general about zones, the perception or the mindset is that you're doing that to raise a capacity, but in running, which is focused way more on events. I mean, the traditional elite world of running is really defined by events of about two minutes to 30 minutes, which is totally different, obviously, than the approach of cycling. A criterium is considered to be pretty short for the world of endurance cycling. And, you know, that's still, you're looking at the scale of an hour and there's a sense of like, you know, well, not a sense of, let's be clear. It's a total inequity um, that women's races aren't the same length as men's races. There's no compelling 
reason why it should be like that. And, you know, when you see the women's elite criteriums at 50 minutes, it's sort of like, why, right? We don't have those 20 minutes somehow. That's not acceptable. Um, and so for runners often think that the biggest really benefit, the race benefit comes um, in what cyclists might think of as zone five and six, this interval VO2 max pace and this rep economy pace, right? So, so far, this should sound pretty familiar because we're kind of reviewing and reestablishing um, some of the stuff that we laid out at the end of the last episode. So, and the other aspect is these zones all show, the running models and cycling models, they're showing us a scaled um, increase in RPE, right? Uh, relative perceived exertion, um, which it seems to be is generally regarded with about as much trust um, as eyewitness testimony, which is to say that it's not very positively regarded at all. I mean, it's sort of dismissed out of hand. And I think that we've outlined some of the problems with that. And hopefully now you're seeing why it was so important to think about that as we go. Since we're speaking to both cyclists, runners, and other endurance athletes, um, these seven zones, power zones, have sort of morphed over time into a variety of different interpretations. So you kind of have this Andrew Coogan model, and that's central um, to Cyclist Training Bible. It's there on training peaks. Um, and then we see this sort of then get applied as something like polarized training, um, which is either you're you know working hard or you're working easy, right? Sort of oversimplification. And if you want to learn more about that and the research behind that, I've mentioned this uh, before, but uh, Stephen Seiler has a great YouTube page. He does post, he really shares a lot of his ideas and his thinking. And it's really interesting to take a look at that. And if you want to learn more about, um, get a better perspective on what the model actually is, that's useful. But I think one of the conclusions people reach from the polarized model is, oh, wow, you know, I've really got to smash these workouts. And Steve even has a talk, or maybe it's a TEDx talk. But if you look at that, the real, what's really being emphasized, then, you know, you may need to watch it twice to, to pick up on this because we're still primed to sort of say, well, what's the workout? You know, I kind of know, you know, okay, you go out and you do some, you know, basic running or some basic riding. We don't think much about that. And they were like, well, what, what, what's actually going to make me good? Like, where are these secret workouts? What he's stressing is that 80%, and I'm sure in some cases, 85 to 90% of the time, you know, the people who are really successful are training in what we might think of as zone one and two, or in the Daniels model are training at the easy long run pace or training at the marathon pace. And one of the charts I found, because one of the pieces of research I did for this is I wanted to look and see what kind of tables you can find if you were just going to look up um, VDOT. And one of them I found, um, you know, as people adapt this table or whatever, and uh, it says in the caption or the sort of introduction to their table, not included is the marathon pace Um because I don't think many coaches would use these and they clutter the table, which I think tells you everything you need to know about where for people who lean really heavily on this kind of a model, where they feel about this. They're like, 
we're basically doing recovery runs or we're doing lactate threshold efforts or higher. And is that really where we want to be um, when we're thinking about this model, right, of training, right? And when we say the mod- thinking about this model of training, I'm referring not to the Daniels model. I'm referring to um, the overall concept of training that we're trying to work towards through this whole podcast. Another iteration of this is high-intensity interval training or HIT, and you know that got a big boost uh, in pop culture in part from people at home during COVID, and people sort of seized on the opportunity to be like, oh, I'm an above-average attractive person um, who has this natural sort of body shape and body fat percentage and meet uh, certain socially constructed standards of beauty and attractiveness. I am going to take videos of myself doing home workouts and exploit the fact that people will associate um, how I look, which they may find desirable or something that they want to achieve for themselves um, with these workouts and interventions that I'm applying, such as you know, basically doing different versions of jumping up and down in your living room 10 to 20 times. And the idea that that's impactful is idiotic. And I don't even think that we should really consider that to be in high intensity uh, interval training anyway. But that's certainly one avenue in which high intensity interval training has started to um, sort of become even more popularized in a broader to sort of fitness culture in general sense. Um, But in the context of this stuff, you might sort of associate HIT training with polarized training. But I think if you really understand, I mean, because what Steven Seiler said is that, you know, when he did studies of, you know, top performing athletes across a lot of endurance sports, that's what, what he found is 80, a common across all of this is 80% plus of their training time was very easy, very comfortably aerobic, right? Now we know, and I think this is a great insight from physiology, we know from this research into physiology over the decades that when you're working at different levels, you're not using just one system or just one other system and that you're engaging different systems um, and it's just different levels of intensity seem to be putting more pressure on the other. And then that's why you can try to articulate these zones and say, well, if you do this, it works more on this. But you know, you're really talking about throwing pebbles in a lake where when you train it has a ripple effect and there's sort of like that initial ring which is specific to that point of impact but it still sort of moves out and affects everything that's why if you compare a couch potato to somebody um, who lifts dumbbells the person who lifts dumbbells is far more likely to beat, beat that couch potato in a five mile foot race because you know they're still going to get a general right a ripple effect of fitness even if Um, you know, bicep curls and tricep extensions or whatever are not at all specific to running five miles. You're still going to have a better overall, um, you know, level of strength and and fitness than somebody who does absolutely nothing. Uh, Another model is sweet spot training, and you might associate this with fast cat coaching. And I think that's sort of out there. And again, I may be oversimplifying these a little bit for the sake of kind of trying to weigh these against each other in a relatively concise manner. Um, but that's the idea of working at this level below lactate threshold and the idea that it's more sustainable and it's more repeatable um, and it can be done more frequently. And I think that that's, I really like those ideas. I think those 
make a lot of sense. I also think that when you go out and you train at Sweet Spot, that in my experience, it's still pretty intense and it still you know requires a lot of mental energy. And I think it sort of teeters on the edge of, is this like requiring me to really get amped, right? Is this like an adrenal demand session? Um, and maybe it depends. And, you know, one of the things that's described, um, you know, with the sweet spot stuff and is this idea of spending incredible amounts of time, like hours and, and sweet spot. And, you know, in, in my case, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but in my case, uh, my aerobic threshold is like 89% of my lactate threshold. Uh, and, you know, my brother is the same and Jillian is the same. Um, and, but my impression is that for a lot of people, it's not as close to that. So maybe one of the reasons why I'm finding that sweet spot to be relatively intense is because although yes, it is at this defined physiological state based on the heart rate, based on the millimoles or whatever, it's still very, very close to that. It doesn't take much. I mean, it's a fractional variation of effort and all of a sudden I'm basically doing threshold intensity. And I think it's, you want your aerobic threshold to be really close to be a really high percentage of your lactate threshold that's good because it means you can ride or run close to your um you know peak um aerobic ability and form of lactate threshold for a long period of time right versus if you have a aerobic threshold that two millimole point um that is maybe 70 percent or 75 percent or something of your lactate threshold then you know it's going to be really difficult for you to, you know, sustain efforts for a long time. And then, you know, the threshold training, I think, is sort of the classic idea where you take these zones and the zones are usually calculated based on your threshold. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the interesting things that's, and I know that this is taking off now because of Gustav and Christian's success at the Kona Ironman in particular, although they had already, from a performance standpoint, certainly done enough to do that, but, you know, right. People need to talk about things to circulate things. Um, so, right. You know, if I might pause and, and make a plug, you know, if you're enjoying the podcast, you know, recommend it to other folks so we can expand this conversation, but they're suggesting, um, Gustav and Christian that, well, you want to be training closer to the three, uh, millimole might be sort of like the ideal point to three millimoles and then closer to maybe one millimole. Right. And again, I'm sort of oversimplifying and there's an element of sort of close to the chest about, this in a way, um, if you look at like their, you know, YouTube content with different athletes involved in this, like Lionel Sanders, there's definitely some sort of gamesmanship and going on in terms of implying that they have the secret, um, to this stuff that other people lack. So step one to engaging with these physiological models and to our jaywalking exercise here is we need to establish the level of the athlete. So Daniels does this by looking at um, a race result um, or a time trial, although a lot of people will perform better in a you know race context than if they just try to go out and time trial. Um, and that's you know a word to the wise for cyclists because what cycling does is trying to find different ways to estimate lactate threshold. One of them is telling people to go out and ride the bike as hard as they can for 20 minutes. And uh, 90 take you take 95% of that and you say, well, that's probably your threshold. Um, I've done, experimented with doing the 20-minute thing, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners out there have because we have a lot of people listening. Um, and, you know, my experience is it sucks, you know, because it's sort of 
pointless. I mean, yeah, you're you're trying to get to this data, but I mean, when you're in a race, right? It's sort of like I want to really put it down because like everybody else is doing that. And that's like the point is to like engage in that, um, you know, risk of stating the obvious, but engage in that competition. Right. And it's fun uh, and exciting to compare and see what you can do. And you can really get out there and extend yourself. But, you know, I think for a lot of us trying to do this in any context, whether it's indoors or outdoors, indoors or outdoors, it's hard to do. And the first time I did it, I just like totally uh, miscalculated and I just, you know, took it out too hard. And after three or four minutes, I was like, well, obviously I could continue to pedal my bicycle to the 20 minute mark, but I'm just going to be deteriorating. And the point of this test seems to be to get the best possible results. So I just canned it. And I came back the next day and I actually took the mindset of, okay, I'm going to pretend that I'm uh, running a 5k and I'm going to break this into sort of like basically a seven minute, a seven minute and a six minute thing. And so I took it uh, in that perspective and it was still extremely unpleasant uh, to do because, you know, the incentive level is just kind of low. Um, and and for me, I'm not a very adrenal athlete in training. So that also couldn't really, not something I got amped up for. And that's part of the reason why I ended up buying a lactate plus meter because it's way easier uh, to do this as a step test, especially when you realize with the step test that you don't need to go to failure. Uh, you just need to go to um, four millimoles and arguably uh, arguably you might really only need to go to two millimole or three millimole and that's something that's not difficult to do like you could really basically i wouldn't recommend this because it's at a certain point it's pointless and the test strips are not i mean they're not uh like expensive but they're also expensive at the same time like there aren't they're like a couple bucks each and all of a sudden you can go through 30 bucks doing a test um, especially if you, you know, have smaller, uh, wattage steps, which I think is a better way to, to make sure you're getting more accurate stuff. And I do 20 Watts every three minutes when I do these tests, I haven't done one in a while, so maybe I'll have to do one, um, to bring up that data to the podcast, but there's always that, uh, anxiety of, you know, what if I do it and I totally suck. So we'll see if I could build up the nerve to do that. Um, but you know, I think that test also has its limitations too. And if you look at some of my data at the very end, um, if you look at those graphs, you're going to see that the last two tests were like, um, I think maybe a week or two apart or something. It was a very close interval and the variation in the results were huge. And I haven't actually done a test uh, since then, which I'm kind of surprised. It wasn't really like an intentional choice. I just kind of didn't think about it. But I think a part of that was sort of like, well, the variance is really bad. Um, like it's a lot. And so this idea that you can set your training zones based on that is maybe really questionable. So, you know, I think the lactate threshold thing is also super appealing to cycling because it's considered to rate relate really well to TT ability and to climbing ability. And it's true that TT ability and climbing ability um, are super significant because when you look at the most significant races to win you're looking at you know probably the tour and the giro and then you're looking at probably um monuments and then spring classics right although maybe different people have different tastes for that but those are races where your ability to ride you know uh, into the wind yourself for long periods of time are really important and then your ability to climb 
is important. And right, there's a distinction between, we talk about this in the power to weight episode, that there's different kinds of climbing ability. Like you can be a powerful rider, you know, who's, who's built at a great, at a strong body weight, and you can train your body to be a great climber, right? You're never going to be a long distance climber, but it's like middle distance runners, you know, you can be a great two to six minute, you know, even nine minute racer. Um, and you'll see people who compare it to like the 10,000 meter runners or the best cross country runners, the people who can do well over these middle distances uh, in, in running races, you know, can, you know, look really strong and, you know, be quite a bit bigger by comparison, right? Over the end of the day, we're all probably going to be smaller athletes because that's the nature of the adaptive pressures of the sports that we're doing. So, you know, there's the basis of the bias, I guess, not basis, although the bias is the basis, really, right, of the selection uh, for the LT is being so important. Although, right, again, we're seeing that for Daniel's running formula, that we're seeing the LT um, as being interpreted as like an endurance mechanism to extend uh, your capacity, whereas in the cycling model, we're using um, the LT um you know, the FTP that we extrapolate from that is sort of like, I would say, you know, having lived in both cultural spaces of these sports, I feel that the LT is sort of analogous to somebody's mile time, right? Your FTP and your mile time are sort of these two things that are taken as these big indicators, you know, and there's no coincidence that the mile time is one of the predictives um, for Daniel's VDOT chart. So, no, I'm not saying that the LT training is the best training. It's just that that's the bias that's at play there, right? And so we sort of organize um, around that principle, right? And because it's like one of those things where though the research shows that athletes who have, you know, good lactate thresholds seem to be able to do well in these races. I wouldn't dismiss that. I think that's true. Um, although I've gotten my uh, lactate threshold up pretty good and that doesn't necessarily automatically mean anything in my experience. Um, but like at the same token, uh, when we're looking at this stuff, like I think we want to also ask the question, well, what's the best way to get that LT might not up there might not be to just specifically hammer it all the time uh, anymore that with running, you know, if you're doing that, you're just sort of doing this. You you haven't gotten past, you know, the Roger Bannister stuff. You're sort of stuck pre-Lydiard. And I think in the last episode I talked about, you know, this sort of like perpetual tragedy and this sort of woe is me pity party culture. And I, you know, say that with humor. I'm not trying to be harsh, but I am also, you know, trying to maybe get people to think a little bit about their attitude about that. Right. And this sort of, you know, like I was an, I'm an, uns, I was a member of an unsuccessful grunge band kind of thing. Um, I think that the problem is like, we're not really applying and cycling these insights of like the mechanism of volume or when people are applying the mechanism of volume, they're accumulating 30 hours a week, but unproductively. And I also want to be clear, I don't mean to imply that everybody who rides a bike in the United States, you know, has this kind of a disposition. Um, and I don't mean to imply that everybody who rides a bike in the United States isn't good at riding their bike. I'm suggesting a positive perspective on this, which is that a mentality shift and a training shift, such as we're talking about in this podcast, 
would find a lot more doors being open for people in the sport because when you get, you know, at the end of the day, you can't argue with fitness and, you know, runners know, you know, the clock does not lie. And I think cyclists, it's easier to hide from that uh, sometimes because there's so many factors that can affect racing. It's sometimes, you know, hard to really acknowledge uh, the fitness, but with the running, it's like you run what you run and it's pretty black and white and you got to learn to live with it or else, you know, that you're going to go find another, another hobby because it can be pretty harsh sometimes. So step two, right. When you frame this, right. So we've now kind of laid out the principles of these two models and how they kind of reach their starting point from which they're going to extrapolate everything else is we have to interpret the data. So let's go specifically, um, at my numbers now and see, uh, what we're looking at with that. So for me, I'm about 5'11". I've said that before in the context of explaining that I've got two younger brothers who are both 6'4", so almost half a foot taller than me. And my weight uh, goes between about 170 and 185. If I've got an, if I'm injury problem or something is, you know, really preventing me from being able to exercise consistently, Um, which is just more likely that, you know, I've injured myself. And since I've kind of gotten back more on the running bandwagon, um, I have, and actually this is a interesting point. So when you look at those um, FTP graphs, basically during that time period, I was only riding almost exclusively. um, And it wasn't really until maybe the like end, the second half of, 2020, maybe in the summer of 2020, I started um, running again. Um, But that was like, compared to the running I've done in the past was nothing special. And at the end, you're going to see, I sort of build, I started 265 watts for my threshold. And then I kind of quickly get up to about 300 and to 310. And I sort of stay there. And then it's not until after I add, um, the running back that then I make this jump and I have these two tests at the end of that data set where I have 330 on October 23rd of 2020. And then at the, uh, whatever that was, I think maybe November 7th or November 3rd. Um, but I come back and I test out at 350. And so, you know, it's not, I hadn't applied any particular intervention Um, of specific training. And you'll see that when I talk more about my approach to the cycling uh, in general. And so I think the running was the biggest variable. I think that's interesting um, that, you know, after applying this non-cycling training intervention, I suddenly make this big jump there. And I also noticed with my riding that, and I had lost weight. This is when I had sort of one point I had gotten back, gotten down to like 168 167 as I'm doing and I'm just and I from a lot of this time I was just riding and I wasn't when I'd go to race it was like no better and you know full disclosure when I was really uh coaching uh the team extensively and by the end of that I had gotten into just into doing it three seasons a year and without realizing it all of a sudden my weight had gotten up to 205 pounds which you know in the grand scheme of things you know, maybe that's crying over spilt milk, um, you know, but for somebody who at one point as a college runner was 143 pounds, you know, you're kind of like, wow, 
And I wasn't stepping on a scale and I didn't really think anything about it. And then all of a sudden I was sort of confronted with it. And so around the time, um, you know, that I transitioned out of coaching that program and into other things, uh, I started trying to really pay more attention to my weight. And in a lot of the road racing I was doing on the bike, when I just switched and I was like, I'm just going to focus on the bike. I'm not even going to run. And for like a year, year and a half, I would say I basically didn't really um, run basically at all, maybe even close to two years. And I lost, you know, a ton of weight. You know, I lost 35 pounds, maybe, maybe, you know, even starting to get up towards 40 pounds. And when I went out to race, I was doing no better um, than when I was running eight miles and, you know, at four o'clock and then getting in the car and going out to do the 60 to 70 minute circuit race, um, on Thursday nights, you know, at, at, you know, 195 to 200 pounds, um, you know, riding, you know, maybe three to four times a week and mostly relying on my running conditioning at that point. And so that was a really interesting dynamic. And I think, you know, even as I raised my threshold on the bike, it didn't seem to be leading to this performance improvement. And I think that raises a lot of questions. And I think by taking away the running, I had really torpedoed myself without realizing it. But at the time, my perspective was still, well, if I really get on this bandwagon, it's going to make a big difference. So this is a part of the reason why I've come to believe that, um, you know, weight doesn't matter that much. And I'm comfortable with having that fluctuation between 170 and 185, because when I train steadily, um, and, you know, depending on how many Reese's peanut butter cups I eat every hour on the hour, um, I, my weight just sort of comes back down. I think we can find our way to an optimal weight if we have a great relationship with sport. And if we're feeling good, you know, good things tend to happen. You know, the body, if you put it in a good place, you know, yourself in a good place, your body is better at finding equilibrium than you might sometimes assume. So, right, let's mount up here and continue the quest for my holy grail of training now that we've established kind of my starting physical profile, height and weight. So the key thing to understand here is performance variance. This performance variance is the reason why a lot of these models become, you know, you know, last week's garbage pretty quickly, you know, and the variance can be massive. So some running data this year, I had a peak 5k of 1748. And, you know, that varied to 1848. And, um, you know, the qualifier, I would say, for me is part of that inconsistency could be because in some ways, I feel like my running is still, you know, on the gradual rebound. Uh, because of that break that I took. Um, so, and that's not to make excuses. You know, I'm pretty happy considering where my running was. I'm very happy to be running, you know, in that range. And, you know, I feel like I can run and that's, you know, part of the point. You know, I don't need to be uh, dropping 15 minutes for 5Ks on Thanksgiving like my brother. Um, so the VDOT estimate, right, means that there's a fluctuation and that's why that's important. Um, is there's a fluctuation between, on the VDOT chart, 57 versus 53. And 
What does that mean? Well, that would mean, for example, with a V dot of 53, my easy or long run pace is recommended at 807. And at 57, it's recommended, um, or I mean, it doesn't say recommendation, it's just this is the pace. Uh, it should be 725. And, you know, how do I know at any given time where I'm at? You know, according to this model, like you do your tests and that's where you're at. And clearly the model is hypothesizing that you just sort of stay at that level. But, you know, my experience testing my lactate threshold uh, showed that there's significant variability. And sometimes I would be, you know, I got to the point where I was doing, I did enough tests that I was, could just tell it wasn't going to go well right away. Because again, like if you empower yourself cognitively by really thinking about this stuff and being reflective and having conversations with people or, you know, cornering people and making them listen to you, you know, jibber jabber at them about what you just experienced, like you can really start to build an awareness. And so sometimes I think there were some tests that I just said, forget it. I'm not doing this because this is just going to suck. And the whole point of this test is to really see, you know, by this metric, is my training working? Is there an improvement? Um, you know, and so for that, my variance on the cycling data, um, I would say my, my variance at kind of my recent fitness level with cycling has been in testing uh, 330 to 350. Um, and like I said, in one instance, that was over the course of like two weeks. And I would say based on actual, um, you know, race data, I would say it, it varies between 320 and 360. And, you know, for me, I'm somebody for whom I can always go a lot better in racing than I can um, in training. And so if you combine that with the weight variation, because FTP is interesting, but it what's more sort of specifically applicable in cycling is trying to then you know, look at that in a watts per kilogram. So that means that my watts per kilogram at FTP can fluctuate at least between 3.8, which um, if you look at some of the kind of tables out there where people try to profile, well, what, you know, level power to weight for different durations is indicative of what levels of racing, right, from novice all the way up to, you know, world-class and world champion. That means I'm fluctuating between you know, what's this, what would be the standard for a mid-category three cyclist at 3.8 watts per kilogram to 4.6 watts per kilogram, which is then your sort of borderline, uh, you know, top of category two to getting into category one. And, you know, full disclosure, right, transparency being the theme of the podcast, if you want to go and raid um, road results in my name, you're not really going to see anything. Um, most of the racing... I've done on the bike has been outside of, you know, the USAC system because the USAC races, you know, for probably a seven or eight year period were just frankly outside of, you know, my ability to reasonably access. Um, and, you know, so it's just not on there. But I also think that is useful because it sort of proves the point that just because you can go out and produce certain numbers according to a, a training table doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be able to go out and, you know, automatically become a category, you know, a high cat two, low cat one, you know, road cyclist. And the conclusion that a lot of people would reach would be to say, well, you know, you must lack kind of the mental skills or the race skills. And I don't think that's really the right conclusion. Um, 
I think what you're really looking at is that you know, lactate threshold alone just doesn't really help us that much. Okay, it only tells us uh, so much um, and that it doesn't automatically mean you're going to go out and then do blank and that that's why focusing in on these single characteristics to both predict how we should train and to uh, make determinations um, about you know how good we are and what we should be able to do in racing is invalid, right? Just like when my power numbers went up um, on the bike um, as a result of whatever I was doing in training at that time was leading to that, but my ability to race wasn't improving. And in some ways I felt that, um, you know, I went from being feeling, you know, very comfortable and strong enough to navigate, you know, sprints, um, you know, as a solo rider to basically being totally gassed. And, you know, now I have a better understanding of like that the running was working on these things and that there's no place in this, in these charts and in these physiological models that say, that account for that, right? They really buy into the notion that this is the key indicator. And if you raise that, you go up. Now, the clever thing about the Daniels VDOT is we're basically saying, well, your VDOT only goes up if you're running faster. And I don't think that was done cynically. I just think that's probably more astute, which also means that you shouldn't change your paces unless you go faster. And I think that's actually a really valid conclusion. Um, and something that ironically is one of the things that's most often missed with the Jack Daniel stuff. But the cycling stuff isn't doing that. The cycling stuff is honing in on um, your training numbers based on the wattage and saying that that's what, what matters. But that that is not um, really going to equate to performance. And with the Daniels running formula, we don't necessarily see um, that always executing at these particular tempos doesn't necessarily lead to improvement. And that's what we want to talk about um, in the next segment. So where do we go from here? We want to talk a little bit about, I want to compare and contrast what the actual breakdown is uh, for my numbers versus um, the recommended numbers for running and cycling. See, can we reach some conclusions about how maybe we want to train? And that's going to set the stage for kind of this improv training concept um, that we have been building up to as like this potential alternative. And then some of the top secret guest episodes that are going to be forthcoming, we're going to be drilling into that and trying to get a better sense from that kind of ethnographic percent of percent perspective, excuse me, of describe how you feel. Um, what is the best approach to that? So thanks for checking out today's episode of Black Cats Run. If you're joining the pod, follow us on Instagram. If you know anybody who you think would find this interesting, please pass it along. We'd love to build the dialogue, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>